Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, a Parisian and his world in the age of the French Revolution, a European view of Ireland in 1913, the development of the first Irish cities in the 18th century, and we'll end the show by talking to the Earl of Harewood about why he established a Buddhist retreat on his historic property. Now, last week we looked at the life and legends of the Roman general Scipio, and we found out how he defeated Hannibal and why he eventually retired from Rome in disgust. So if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the glory and the sorrow and a Frenchman's insight into the events of the revolutionary period. What was it like to live through one of the most transformational periods in world history? Well, a new book answers this question through a masterful recreation of the world of Adrian Coulson, a minor lawyer who lived in Paris at the end of the old regime and during the first eight years of the French Revolution. The book is called... The Glory and the Sorrow, A Parisian and His World in the Age of the French Revolution. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Timothy Tackett. And Timothy, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a fascinating approach to to looking at this age of revolution. And I wonder why did you decide to tell the story using the life and these 1,000 letters written by by Adrienne Coulson? Well, you know, I've written several books, actually, about the French Revolution, uh, but usually they've been uh, collective biographies or looking at large groups of people, how men and women, uh, looking at, uh, observed in a larger sense, reacted to the revolution, both men and women, both lay and ecclesiastics, how they were transformed by events and how eventually they came to accept violence. These are problems that I've thought a lot about in the past. But I was interested in the possibility of looking at the itinerary of one individual. And an obvious choice, really, was Adrien Colson, or Colson, we'd say in English, since he was already an important witness uh, in my most recent book on the coming of the terror. And as you say, (laughs) the other attractive feature of Colson's life was that he had written over a thousand letters and that those letters have some, somehow miraculously been preserved. And what were, what were his views on the revolution? Was he in favour of it? Did his views change at all as it went on? Oh, he, the, the views changed a lot during the course of the revolution. I mean, one of the fascinating uh, discoveries that I made in looking at Colson and at some of the other writers of the period was that so few of them anticipated the revolution. They simply did not know it was coming, see that it was coming. They never used the word revolution itself. The very word revolution doesn't re- really emerge until about June or July of 1789. And Colson in his letters revealed no hostility toward the king, and he continued to be a very orthodox Catholic. He attended all the uh, liturgical year in the local church, which was just around the corner. Uh, And so there really was no inkling of what was to come. Uh, He was stunned by the calling of the Assembly of Notables in 1787, which many historians would say mark a kind of pre-revolution and even more, of course, by the calling of the Estates General. And he was influenced by a great, the great flood of pamphlets 
1788 and 1789, which started to appear. Um, in the summer of 1789, the finance minister, the new finance minister, the Swiss Jacques Necker, had issued a call for municipal governments throughout the kingdom to look into their archives and tell him how the previous estates generals had been organized. The last one was really in, what, 1614, and nobody was quite sure about how it was organized. And so people started writing, either individually or as associations, uh, dozens of letters, dozens of brochures. And not only would they discuss how those states general should meet, but what they should talk about, what kinds of reforms ought to be brought about. And in reading these brochures, I would argue that Colson became, in a way, politicized. Uh, he would go to the Palais Royal, which is the great rectangular base near his house, where so many of these brochures were being sold. He would look at them, he would read some of them, he'd buy some and bring them back to read to his neighbors. And I think that this, more than, more than any one factor, politicized him. And it was in the course of 87 and 88 that he, in his letters, not only described to his friend in central France uh, what was happening, but he started pronouncing his own opinions. And then we can follow him through the letters as he embraced the new organization of the clergy, which he now came to accept Protestants, uh, of whom he was once terribly suspicious. Uh, he came to view the king in a different way. He had once so admired the king, never said anything back bad about the king. But little by little, and especially after the king attempted to flee the country in June of 1791, and was caught uh, and brought back to Paris, uh, that he became increasingly suspicious and unhappy with Louis the Sixteenth, the King of France. So, in a way, we get a sense of how regular Parisians, ordinary Parisians, were being radicalized during this period. How their views were being shaped and influenced. That's right. That's right. I, you know, I'd argue that uh, Colson, who, rather unlike most lawyers of the period and living in Paris, came from a, quite a modest background. He came from an artisan family in eastern. France, and he felt very much at home with the little uh, artisans and craftsmen and shopkeepers that lived on the street where he had his apartment. And uh, he felt much closer in many ways to those people than to uh, the elites that, uh, to which a, a number of, which most other lawyers would have uh, linked themselves with. So he, come, he comes off as a kind of voice, a kind of cultural intermediary, social intermediary between uh, the elites and the masses in his descriptions. Did researching and writing the book change how you viewed the French Revolution? Did you get a different insight into, into how it turned out and how, how people viewed it? Well, I, as I say, I think the biggest, well, there were several discoveries. One was that the, uh, the revolution was so little anticipated by the masses of the population in Paris. Uh, looking at it in retrospect, historians come, tend to think that it was all programs, uh, that 
uh, there was a revolution before a revolution, as some historians would say. Uh, but it was clear from reading letters of Colson that that was not at all the case. He, it, the revolution was simply not anticipated. So I suppose that was one major discovery. Another was the importance of rumor during the French Revolution. Um, he, especially in the early days of the of the revolution, it was very hard to get accurate news. And he had to rely on what was being said in the streets. And rumors often were of good things, but the majority of those rumors were terrifying uh, that uh, uh, the prisons were about to break open and uh, dastardly people were going to fall upon the revolutionaries. There were counter-revolutionary armies about to arrive, that the bread supply was being blocked. Most of these rumors are quite false, but they played an enormous role, I think, in radicalizing the population. Well, Timothy, congratulations on the book. It's called The Glory and the Sorrow, A Parisian and His World in the Age of the French Revolution. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Timothy Tackett. And Timothy, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The black and tans were controversial at the time, and as recent events have shown, they continue to be controversial. And a new book explores their story and also lists alphabetically every individual member of the the three distinct groups who were liable to be called a black and tan. The book is called The Black and Tans, 1920 to 1921, A Complete Alphabetical List, Short History and Genealogical Guide. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Jim Hurley, to the show tonight. Jim, you're very welcome. Uh, thanks very much. Before we go into the, the, the history, the origins and the mythology surrounding the Black and Tans, can we begin with some of the intriguing figures who were Black and Tans, including William Hill, who went on to form the bookies William Hill? William Hill was stationed in County Cork and he was living in Mallow when he was there and he was injured in an ambush and he claimed um, compensation. And uh, when I found out about him, I was actually giving a talk in Cork one night and this guy down the back of the room says, uh, William Hill cost me a fortune, so I automatically thought he had a betting problem. Well, he said no. He said, um, in fact, he stayed with relatives of mine. They had a pub in Mallow. And um, he came back in 1940. He was looked after so well. He came back in 1940, left a parcel of money outside the door uh, in an envelope. And um, that night he came in and he had a pint in, and they realised who it was at that stage. So I asked the man what was the problem with with uh, William Hill. So he said, actually, the people who owned the pub, he said, didn't leave it to my side of the family. He said they left it to the nuns. And I noticed that um, the publican after when I went checking actually died in the Bonsacore's hospital uh, in Cork. So I presume they were the nuns that got the money. And this was this man's problem. What's very interesting is that there's such a mythology around the Black and Tans and you you explore some of that here, like including this sense that this idea that they were ex-cons released from jails in England. Actually, there were some Irish-born black and tans, and it's a different story from the popular imagery. Yes, and the amount of Irish also that were in it. For example, like there were three different groupings. You had what I call the RIC Special Reserve, and there were 7,684 of those with 381 uh, Irish then you had the temporary constables, another grouping. 
2,189 and 312 uh, of those were Irish. And then you had the Veterans and Drivers Division, uh, 1,069, with again 189 uh, Irish. And of course, separate to the towns, you had the Auxiliary Division. They're always getting mixed up, especially with photographs, even in the best of sources. I've seen photographs completely labelled wrong, mixing up the Auxiliary Division and the Black and Tans. And the main distinction between the two is that the temporary cadets are Auxiliary Divisions and members of those, um, which number 2,263, again, 182 of those were Irish. They were ex commissioned officers of the British Army, whereas collectively the Black and Tans made up of the RIC Special Reserve, temporary constables, and veterans and drivers were non-commissioned officers. Uh, but they're a very colourful bunch, and this idea they were left out of jails is a complete and utter uh, fable at this stage. And um, just some very interesting character. And the thing I also thought is that they were all recruited in London, and believe it or not, there's 83 different recruiting offices um, all over uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, they were recruited from there, not just London itself. So the kind of myth that went out about them at the time, it's when you go in and look at each individual record, um, each one has a different story to tell. And uh, not collectively, obviously it's in the Irish psyche, um, for the atrocities that were committed, and they're, they're, they're probably worse remembered for all the doors, but um, a lot of them um, had fallen in hard times uh, after the war, um, and it was just a job, just came over. They never realised uh, the extent to what they were uh, going to get themselves involved in, and of course, they ruined lives for the regular RAC. Um, I was lucky enough to interview. An RAC man, they got to work with him in the Michael Collins film. And believe it or not, when I went looking for him, the man was, when he died in 1996, he had been 74 years a pensioner. Um, and a great character. He had a sense of humour. That's something I never expected, say, from a regular RAC man to have a sense of humour. You weren't taught uh, that in school, to maybe the one supposed to have a sense of humour. And a complete, not a uh, very vivid um, recollection. It's also interesting to see some of the the biographical stories that emerge, including uh, the godson of Roger Casement, who was a black and tan. And how that connection came about, uh, Douglas Valder Duff was that man's name, and he's the most extraordinary character I've ever come across. I'm, I've been tracing policemen for the best part of 40 years, but he really takes the biscuits. Um, he was born in Argentina, and that's... Uh, his father was um, a diplomat there at the time. That's where the connection with Caseman comes in. Uh, but he went on to write, believe it or not, 104 books. And he had two different pseudonyms. And you can go online. I challenge anybody to go online, go on eBay, and t- type in Douglas Valder Duff, and you'll guarantee you'll find several of his books. Um, and they're all the biggest type books at the time, um, like War Heroes in the comics today, with the red going up. But a lot of the stories are, are really his his life story. Um, he was um, he his father was a, a naval man, and also he he was in the navy, uh, the merchant navy in World War One, and his ship um, was hit by a torpedo, and he's the only survivor of that. And he said that he if he would survive, um, he would go away and become a monk, which he did for a while. 
and after that he he went to complete reverse and uh, be- became what you know, we know as, as a black and tan. And after that then, he went and joined the Palestine police. He was a spy also in World War Two, And um, he's written both three different autobiographies and many more stories that, again, are partial uh, autobiographies. But I've yet to find anything, say, out of place in what he said. And I verified everything. Even he to me, when he was in Dublin, he actually met Collins. Um, and um, he has Irish connections also, Duff's from up around Leitrim and Longford, that part of the country. But um, an extraordinary character. And one of the funniest things I came across with him was that um, when he, his father died, and he wanted, look, he didn't make it back for the, to be with his father at the very end. So he said he'd look after the funeral arrangements. So what he did was he, dis, he got his father cremated, made this little boat, the father being seafaring, obviously, and put an urn into the boat and sailed it up to Thames with a bomb inside it and blew it up. So very inventive character and very, very memorable characters. And as I say, his books are... Um, some of them are quite rare, but uh, they're absolutely extraordinary in the detail and very factual. And um, as I say, I've yet to find anything out of place, really, with with everything that he said. And uh, the books in their own time are great adventure stories. Any kids would definitely like them. And Jim, a final question. What did you make of the controversy at the start of of 2020 in the lead up to the general election where uh, a, com- a proposed commemoration of the RIC ended up becoming uh, called a black and tan commemoration and, and huge political controversy and fallout? Well, I, I tell you what, I, the, this has really turned full circle for me because um, we're now going to have a commemoration uh, hosted by the Police Royal of Honour Trust in London on the 29th of April. And to date, we've had over 400 uh, applications. Now, the police role of Honour Trust, remember, all policemen killed in the line of duty in the United Kingdom, but also uh, in Ireland, uh, up to uh, partition, including the Royal Irish Constabulary, Government Department Police and the Revenue Police. And the, the reason we picked St Paul's Cathedral is that there are two memorials to the regular RAC, one, um, in St Paul's Cathedral and the, on, the other in St Patrick's Chapel in Westminster Cathedral and um, as regards the, uh, the the origin of those goes back to 1920 when they were not, it was Mountbatten's uh, father-in-law proposed that there would be a, a memorial to the RAC now there are none in the island of Ireland and the uh, Harp Society which has been commemorating our receiving for since 2013. Um, we had an interdenominational service, which we had for about six years in a row. And the Minister for Justice, uh, Charlie Flanagan, attended a meeting. We had some absolutely tremendous support from the uh, policemen in North Ireland, and in, in particular widows. And what actually really happened then was when he was invited, he got to hear the harrowing stories which is a repeat of the casualties of the RAC widows and, and now RUC widows. And he took it upon himself at that stage to arrange a Dublin Castle. We only got an invite. We had no input into it whatsoever. 
but it went pear-shaped after that. But um, the great thing is, to, is that they will be remembered and they'll be remembered without any glorification, just to remember, like 642 policemen lost their lives between 1836 and 1922. And there's not a shred of a memorial in Ireland. It's, I think it's absolutely scandalous altogether. Um, like there are bad actors in every organisation. And at the tail end of this, the, as I've already said, is that the RIC were absolutely ruined by the Black and Tans and um, the complete, it was completely hijacked by um, uh, several people. Uh, the whole thing went off in a tangent, but the bottom line is that there were all the policemen, the majority of which were killed in the line of duty, and they definitely should be remembered. OK, well, Jim, thanks for joining us tonight. The book is called The Black and Tans, 1920-21, to 21, A Complete Alphabetical List, Short History and Genealogical Guide. The book is published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Jim Hurley. And Jim, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you indeed. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book contains the first and only English translation of Richard Berman's Ireland. And it's a book that places Irish conflicts in international imperialist scenarios and constitutes a unique source on Ireland immediately before the First World War. And it affords an insight into Irish culture and society that is astute, entertaining, diverse, informed and independent. The book is called Ireland 1913 by Richard Berman. It's translated and edited by Lisa Wheatley and Florian Crobb, published in hardback by Cork University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome Florian Crobb to the show tonight. Florian, you're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Can you tell our listeners about Richard Berman? Who was he? And tell us about his visit to Ireland. He was born in Prague in 1883. uh, And very soon after graduating from Vienna University, he resettled to Berlin and found employment uh, with the leading liberal newspaper, the Berliner Tageblatt. And... uh, He developed after the First World War into one of their star reporters. Uh, He was sent all over the world to South America, North America, Africa, uh, Asia indeed. But his his journey to Ireland in 1913 uh, was his first uh, foreign deployment. So uh, he went there... uh, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, a 30-year-old, just making a name for himself in uh, uh, metropolitan Berlin journalism. And uh, that is reflected in his prose. He's very fresh, curious, but ironic and acerbic as well. And he is quite a, a fascinating character because he he later, you know, travels to Hollywood. He becomes friends with Charlie Chaplin. Indeed. Uh, uh, there's, there's loads of, there's, there's a wider life to him as well. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, and he met, uh, he met Charlie Chaplin in the house of Winston Churchill, which is very uh, <laughs> funny indeed. In, in, in he, he accompanied... Uh, Graf Andrasi, uh, who is known as the English patient on uh, the former Count, Hungarian Count's journey into the Sahara. He had, because he was of uh, Jewish uh, parentage, 
he had to emigrate uh, when the Nazis uh, seized Austria, where he took uh, refuge originally after having to leave Berlin, and emigrated to the United States, where he died in 1939, just months after his arrival in the United States in uh, Zaragoza Springs, from, from sheer exhaustion. Talk to me about the insights that we get in the book into Irish society at that time, because it, it's very interesting to get an external perspective on your own country. And he had given his own background and his own instincts, uh, I think, some wonderful insights and some very astute insights into Ireland at that time. He's being sent to Ireland, actually, to kind of take the temperature. Uh, we are at the height of imperialism and uh, on the continent, people were speculating what strategic role Ireland, so the United Kingdom's backyard, so to speak, would, would take. But he travels uh, in the summer of 1913 for six weeks, almost like a tourist. He starts in Cork, goes to the west of Ireland, uh, then uh, back uh, via the River Shannon to, to Dublin, and then goes to uh, the north of Ireland uh, to Belfast. He is keen to uh, mix an impression that you might call touristy, a mere visitor, uh, uh, commenting on the landscape, on the people, on social life, on architecture, and things like that, uh, with a very astute sense of uh, societal change and unrest in Dublin itself, uh, but also in Belfast and in Bray, for example, where... Uh, there are two chapters set in, in Bray, and they are actually both very funny and, and, and very very astute in their observation. Uh, for those uh, interested in, in history itself, uh, he meets Sir Edward Carson. He has an exclusive interview because he is an envoy of one of the continent's major newspapers. Uh, and then he visits one of uh, the uh, Unionist monster rallies in the north and gives a very fresh, uh, unbiased, personal, subjective impression of what he experiences there. He comments, he he includes a fictitious open letter to uh, Carsten and says uh, to him, don't be afraid of home rule. These are insights and commentaries from a European intellectual's perspective uh, who sees the, uh, the things going on in Ireland, also industrial unrest, uh, the, 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 the strikes, for example, with, uh, uh, with a complete lack of bias, a complete uh, naivety and curiosity uh, towards his, uh, his, 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 his subjects and, 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 and what he sees. And he manages to convey uh, these impressions and insights and anecdotes uh, that he encounters in a very, very fresh and entertaining journalistic style. And that's, I think, what makes this uh, book uh, unique, because there are a number of uh, uh, travel books on Ireland in the 19th century, but a lot of them are either very, very political and biased, or they are uh, in awe of Celtic law and Celtic uh, traditions uh, and so on. And Beermann uh, avoids that. 
And in terms of the complications within our society, I think he was very good at, at, at exposing those and exploring those. Yes, yes, yes. He, he, he exposes a lot. For example, the visit uh, to Bray, I think that's one of the most entertaining and astute of his uh, chapters. Uh, he, first of all, compares Bray to any Victorian seaside resort, be it on the Baltic Sea or be it outside Sydney or Cape Town, for example, and says there is no difference. There is nothing really that makes it Irish. And uh, when he encounters a marching band uh, that play uh, uh, God Save the King, he recognizes that it is exactly the same melody as the German national anthem at the time, uh, because, of course, the dynasties were related and had employed the same composer in the 18th century for their uh, national anthem. Uh, and then he uh, stumbles upon Fieschkold. Uh, I wonder, would you have a reading for us, Florian, from the book? Well, as it happens, I have in front of me uh, a little bit of uh, this Bray episode there. Uh, he uh, has settled into one of these guest houses there and uh, encounters a German chef with whom he has a little chat about cuisine. And then he continues, after dinner, it all became very Anglo-Irish again. I was sitting beside five tall gentlemen in the smoking room who wanted to know what we thought of the Balkans in Germany. And that's what you said about uh, the political temperature at the time, the crisis points. and was the invent- uh, invasion not about to begin? And were we not shaking in our boots, he says, uh, of the Germans, of his countrymen, uh, because of the might of uh, the British Empire? I talked until my mouth was dry and then rang the bell. The maid came over and I asked for a whiskey and soda. The girl pulled a face in response, telling me, I was in a non-alcoholic hotel. On hearing this, one of the gentlemen stood up and returned a short while later with a huge bottle of whiskey. He had it in his bedroom for rinsing out his mouth. It was really good old whiskey. Nothing beats a non-alcoholic hotel. And you can see that in this anecdotal style, there is a lot of uh, social commentary and even political commentary because... uh, Uh, The conversation is dominated by the prospect of mutual invasion uh, between uh, uh, Britain and Germany, the two leading uh, imperial powers at the time. And you can sense that in the air. His uh, take on these tensions is uh, it's a lot of hot air. It's, uh, It's a storm in a teacup. He says we are too alike uh, to uh, get openly hostile. Uh, uh, But uh, as we know, uh, about a year later, he was proven horribly wrong. Very good. And and finally there, Florian, how significant a text do you think it is today? I know of responses of two readers uh, who said, Irish readers, educated people, who said, we were at the same time 
very amused, very entertained by this prose. We learned a lot about our own country and history that we didn't know before because it's full of information. It's full of historical uh, uh, facts, historical uh, impressions, uh, mostly when he uh, visits a building or, for example, the battlefield on the River Boyne, uh, where he reconstructs uh, the historical uh, events. But these readers also said we were uh, surprised and quite shocked that in many respects, as regards national stereotypes and characteristics, we recognize a lot. Not that much has changed in the mentality of Irish people. So he pinpoints very typical traits of uh, the Irish population of all sides, uh, be it uh, the Anglo-Irish elite or the workers he encounters uh, when he strolls through Dublin. But they also said occasionally we felt a little bit offended because Behrman doesn't mince his words. And he, uh, when he sees something that he finds absolutely ludicrous, he says so. And he has a very, very keen sense for certain contradictions and absurdities in Irish society. Well, Florian, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about a fascinating insight into Ireland on the eve of the First World War in the 1916 uh, rebellion. The book is called Ireland 1913 uh, by Richard Berman, translated and edited, and a wonderful job indeed done by Lisa Wheatley and Florian Crobb. The book is published in hardback by Cork University Press, and I'm so delighted that Florian Crobb was able to join us tonight. Florian, thank you so much and for such a beautiful reading. Thank you, thank you very much. A pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A backward corner of Europe in 1600, Ireland was transformed during the following centuries and a brilliant new book explores 10 urban centres and their patterns of physical, social and cultural evolution, relating this to the legacies of a violent past and reflecting on their subsequent partial eclipse. The book is called The First Irish Cities, an 18th century transformation. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press and the author is David Dixon. David, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can I begin with that uh, subtitle, An 18th Century Transformation? What exactly do you mean by a transformation? What, what is happening in Ireland in this period? Well, the easy answer is to say that um, a number of, by European standards, very small cities became uh, really quite important cities by any European measure. So it, uh, first of all, it's a measure of uh, population size. Uh, that most of the places that are examined in this book become a great deal larger over a period of a little over 100 years. But this also refers to the fact that the site, uh, that the actual sites of these cities become bigger, uh, their function becomes uh, more diverse, and their, their makeup uh, changes enormously in terms of the social and indeed ethnic origins uh, of those who become the citizens of these places. There's an awful lot happening, but the easy answer is to say they got much bigger. Now, even if you mention cities in Ireland today, there's always arguments about what's a city and how do you define a city. Uh, Did you have that challenge when you were researching and writing the book about what 10 urban centres to include and which ones didn't make the cut? Yes, it is an issue, uh, or rather it is an issue at the very beginning. But what I did uh, was really 
to use uh, the objective measure of the 1821 census, uh, the first national census, and take the 10 or largest urban places uh, at that point and to work backwards. Um, and that kind of uh, satisfied what I was trying to do anyway, but it, it, at least it means that by that point, uh, the top 10 are, uh, have almost reached a minimum of 10,000 uh, in their settled population, and some of them are a great deal larger. So it, it's working backwards from the first national census uh, and, and the top-ranking places at that point. And it also gives us a nice geographical spread then across the island. <laughs> it does, it does. And this is only, I mean, they're all ports, uh, except for the uh, case of Kilkenny. Uh, it's the only inland place. Uh, and of course it was uh, deemed a city from the early 17th century as well. Was what was happening in Ireland with these cities similar to what was happening in Europe and in the rest of the world, or are these unique examples of, of cities being developed? Well, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, because um, we can say now, thanks to work of some uh, historians of European urbanisation of 30 years ago, particularly I'm thinking here of Jan de Vries, who was looking at about nearly 400 urban places over a 300-year span from 1500 to 1800, and included a number of Irish places in his enormous data set. And what's really interesting is in the first half of the uh, survey, the Vries survey up to 1650, uh, Irish places, even Dublin, don't figure at all. Uh, but what you see in the second half, in other words, from the mid-17th century up to uh, 1800, the end of that project, uh, a number of Irish cities are shooting up the rankings uh, uh, but led initially by Dublin and Cork uh, and with uh, a number of other places joining in. So the, the, the Irish cities of the late 18th century are very substantial uh, by uh, any European measure, uh, but there are parallels to what's happening uh, insofar as you can see around the Atlantic a number of other uh, port cities, Atlantic-facing cities, uh, that grow very rapidly in the same period. Uh, and you've also got parallels to Dublin's growth uh, as a great political and, and, and sort of court city. Uh, that, that was also one of the things that uh, made big cities even bigger in the 1700s. Now, today there is a lot of consideration about the impact of slavery and uh, money from the slave trade and how that uh, contributed to the development of, of various things in Ireland uh, in the past. Uh, is that something that is uh, something that we have to bear in mind when we're talking about the development of these Irish cities? Were they implicated in the slave trade and did they profit from it? Well, it's a question that got bigger as I was writing this book. Uh, uh, I, I think the the short answer is that uh, compared to, uh, let's say, the Bristol or Glasgow or, or certainly Liverpool, uh, it's uh, quite easy to say uh, no uh, Irish cities were not directly involved in the, the Middle Passage, were not directly involved in the, the purchase of enslaved persons in West Africa and their sale in the Caribbean. Um, and that's partly because of the, uh, mo- the monopolies that operated at the time uh, excluding Irish merchants from uh, some of the elements of the British Atlantic trade. But uh, the two very major qualifications one has to make, first of all, there are plenty of cases we can see of Irish merchants elsewhere, expatriate Irish uh, merchant firms, particularly in France, in Nantes and in Bordeaux, uh, that most certainly were involved in the uh, West Africa trade and in the trade in, in 
enslaving. Uh, that's, if you like, a, a, a big footnote. But the more important point is that, of course, much of the export trade, particularly of the Munster ports, um, in the 18th century was tied to demand from across the Atlantic, from the 13 colonies, uh, and from, of course, the, uh, the slave and sugar islands. So if you try to sort of factorize the uh, slavery from the equation and say well, what the 18th century Irish cities have been like if there had been no sugar and slavery in the Caribbean, you can immediately say it would have been a very different story. Uh, how different is rather hard to calculate, but there is certainly this indirect dividend um, for uh, Irish cities and for Irish merchants and for uh, Irish farmers coming from the, the huge uh, strength uh, from the Sugar Islands. Now, it, it's quite complicated, and it's not simply a question of how were the uh, enslaved families fed. It's, it's a great deal more than that. But the point is that the Caribbean's importance in the 18th century uh, was certainly up to the American Revolution. Is, uh, you know, so central to understanding the, uh, the British Atlantic um, ascendancy, uh, of which Ireland was part, uh, that it's possible to sort of factor out uh, Irish cities' development from, from that story. What surprised you researching the book when you were looking at these cities? Were there things that, that cropped up that you weren't expecting to discover? Yes, I mean, I've been sort of had an interest in this field for a very a long time, but actually trying to sort of bring together the work of really a lot of people who've been sort of specialists on individual cities and who've sort of written about uh, their their places, but trying in sense to, to work across the canvas has thrown up both some patterns, some similarities and development, but also, if you like, they, it was struck me is that there are taking these ten places, ten stories, uh, ten contrast, ten contrast. So I think the indifference. Uh, I mean, just to take one example, the uh, way in which in, in several cities uh, the kind of survival of major Catholic families in trade and even kind of permissive tolerance of, of Catholic worship was very obvious and very uh, continuous. I think places like Kilkenny, uh, Galway, uh, Waterford, and contrasting that with a very different environment uh, in Cork or in Dublin, uh, Sligo or wherever. And I think you know, the, the contrast within the term is perhaps more strong than I would have expected. But one of the things that, in a sense, I, I, I was a little surprised at is if, if one sits down and tries to work out the uh, religious composition of these cities over time, and it's quite hard to do it because it's very fragmentary evidence, but nevertheless, what, what surprised me was when I tried to sort of link together material from the uh, Cromwellian area, from the uh, Petty's uh, poll tax data, and sort of running that against the 1821 census, or rather the uh, early 19th century census that have religious information, uh, such as that in 1834, you can see uh, a very interesting pattern of what I've called the, the re-Catholicization of um, Irish cities, with the exception of uh, Belfast, uh, during that period. But a, a pattern of religious change that is uh, distinctive from city to city and in a sense a, that's a different story explaining that that change it touches on migration it touches on on who the, the big players in individual towns was but i think it was that if you like on the one hand certain common patterns but uh, distinctive stories that i found uh, so interesting and a lot more to be done uh, and i kept coming up against if you like unanswerable questions or at least they were unanswerable to me 
uh, during COVID, but maybe in the future can be uh, thrashed out. Okay, well, David, thank you so much for talking to us about your book. It's The First Irish Cities and 18th Century Transformation, the new book published in hardback by Yale University Press. I think it's going to be a very significant and influential book uh, for those studying Ireland in the 18th century. And David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Uh, David Dixon, the author there. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In the spring of 2004, David Lascelles invited a group of monks from Bhutan to build a stupa in the gardens of Harewood House in Yorkshire. It was a step into the unknown for the Bhutanese. They didn't speak any English, had never travelled outside their own culture, had never flown in an aeroplane or seen the ocean. And a new book tells the story behind this extraordinary meeting of cultures. The book is called A Hair Marked Moon from Bhutan to Yorkshire, the story of an English stupa. It's published in hardback by Unbound. The author is David Lascelles. And David, you're very welcome to the show tonight. I'm I'm very pleased to be with you. It's a fascinating story and a a very interesting and intriguing book. Can you take us back to the spring of 2004 and this really incredibly ambitious project that you had come up with? Well, it was, as you said in your introduction, it really was a a leap into the unknown for all of us, really. Uh, I mean, for, for me, I had... Uh, the night before we were due to leave Bhutan, I had, I suppose, something like a panic attack. I've never had one of those. I suppose it was a little bit like that, where I was actually ready to call the whole thing off because I knew it was going to be a disaster. We were going to get stopped at customs. Everybody would be strip searched. The monks would be traumatized. You know, everything was going to go wrong. So, yeah, I had, I had serious uh, sort of eve of the show type, uh, type nerves. And for the monks, of course, it was completely a trip into the unknown. Uh, you know, all the unfamiliar things that you mentioned, you know, then being here, the Yorkshire weather, uh, the food, Yorkshire sense of humour, you know, all the things that could have gone badly awry. But uh, amazingly, luckily, uh, it all fits into place. It, it, worked, it worked wonderfully well. And talk to us about these Buddhist stupas. What exactly are they and how important are they in Buddhist ritual and culture? You see them, I've travelled a lot in the Himalayas, and you see them everywhere there. They are um, sort of elegant sculptural forms uh, in simple sort of geometric to- terms. They're a, a cube with a sphere on top and a cone on top of that. Uh, they vary architecturally amongst uh, around all the different Buddhist countries in the world. So the designs that the, the one we base our designs on are the Himalayan stupas, the Tibetan style stupas. But you find them in Sri Lanka, you find them in Burma. You find them in China and Japan. The pagoda is a type of stupa. Uh, so they're very familiar objects in those parts of the world, but they're very accessible objects. They're not like a, a temple which you go to and you're very reverential. You go inside and say your prayers. They are, uh, I've heard them described as many, many different things, uh, you know, as, as a sculpture, as a landmark, as a reliquary shrine, the very first Supers were put uh, were built to put the ashes of the uh, of the Buddha himself when he died, uh, but you know they are they're very accessible. That's what I liked about them, and that's what I thought might work here in in in, uh, in the Himalayas. You'll see them uh, at the top of mountain passes or confluence of rivers uh, in the courtyard of monasteries in the sort of centre of, of, uh, of villages. Uh, they're they're ubiquitous. 
And then this fascinating introduction to Yorkshire and to Harewood House. And our Irish listeners may not be familiar with your own background. Uh, You're a very successful film and TV producer, but also the eighth Earl of Harewood, a a first cousin once removed of Queen Elizabeth II. Talk to us about your own interest in Buddhism and Harewood House and, and this coming together of these two different worlds. Well, I've always been fascinated by that. I feel I'm fascinated by uh, different cultures, how they can how they can work together. I mean, sadly, we're in a time where there's a lot of talk, a lot of divisive talk about uh, about different cultures and this culture against that culture. That terrible expression for me, a uh, culture wars. Culture should be about bringing people together. Uh, you know, our, our own culture is is very strong and one we should be proud of. But other people's cultures are very strong and things and ones they should be proud of too. And this was a wonderful opportunity, really, to bring two what might at first sight seem very different cultures. You know, the, the English country house, which is uh, a house built in the 18th century, where my built by my distant ancestors, uh, and 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 somewhere from something from somewhere completely the other side of the world. But of course, English gardens are full of plants from all over the world, particularly from the uh, from the. Uh, from the Himalayas, Irish gardens too, I guess. I mean, the Rhododendron is a home of Himalayan plant. Uh, so it, the, there are precedents for it, but it was, uh, yeah, it was just an exciting, uh, exciting thing to try to do to bring those cultures together. Slavery had helped build and pay for uh, yes. this in its historic context, and that's something you talk about, and that's something you wrestle with. Was this something that you were trying to do to, in a way, it was you also coming to terms with that past and that legacy? Not, not literally, perhaps. I mean, it's something that my wife Diane and I, and, and everybody here, Herbert has, 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 uh, has tried to be open and engage with for, for a long time now, uh, which is not something that uh, that we as a nation have done very well, I believe. But we've tried to at least be open about our history, not to pretend it didn't happen, uh, to engage with the legacy of that history, to work with creative people, particularly from those communities today, artists, painters, performers, writers, poets, and so on. Um, so, you know, there's not a literal connection, really, but the, but the two things were going on in parallel. I mean, the, the, the super uh, was built in 2004, uh, and that was during the build-up here to 2007, which is the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade, uh, where we staged a lot of different events here. So the two were sort of subliminally connected, although there wasn't, it wasn't a literal, it, well, in my mind, it was never a kind of literal thing. And I'm curious to know then, what was the effect then of this, of this incredible project in setting up this stupa? Did it in some ways harmonise the environment in the way that uh, stupas do in Buddhist thought? What was the impact? It's, again, a difficult one to judge. The second half of the book, uh, is about really me trying to come to terms with exactly that, with the with the impact. The first half is describing how it came about, the monks coming over, uh, sort of chronicling the actual building of the stupa and so on. But it's only now, 17 years later, or over those 17 years, that you start to, I start to feel that it, it has had that harmonising influence in a way. Uh, I mean, in, in the uh, in the Himalayas that. Uh, that's, stupas are often used quite literally in that way. They're built in places uh, where there are earthquakes, and they are built to 
subjugate the turbulent forces of the earth in, in, in Buddhist terms. Um, and I think, I guess you can apply that, that uh, 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 sort of metaphorically as well as literally, you know, and, and having a super here. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has made a difference to subjugating the, the, uh, the, the, the forces of how, of how it was passed and trying to find a way to make sense of them in the present, which is what we're trying to do. And I also loved your own meditations and reflections on your own engagement with Buddhism, your travels in the Himalayas, your exploration of the history. And it's very much, again, going back to what you said about the divisiveness of the current world, that in a way this opens up ways of maybe escaping from that mindset and and realising that there's other ways of approaching problems and the worlds we live in. I think that's right. I mean, I think that's what we've got you know, in a very, very difficult time, particularly uh, in, in, in this country, in England. Uh, it's anything we can do to try to be you know, a small grain of sand on the other side of the, uh, of the scales, as it were, in a, in a very uh, sort of fractious and divisive time. And Buddhism is very, about, very much about that. I mean, the, at the heart of Buddhist philosophy, if you like, it is about trying to see things the way they really are, to try to find uh, ways of bringing things together, together, bringing people together. And that has to come from, from, from within you, what Buddhists would call your, your Buddha nature. Buddhists believe that all of us have Buddha nature within us. Uh, the, the, the difficulty is, well, number one, really, like realizing it and then finding it. That's something that almost everybody will spend their lifetime trying trying to do. Um, so, you know, that for me, that's the that's the, uh, the the attraction, the force, whatever you want to call it, of Buddhism. It gives you it gives you those uh, those tools, those those uh, uh, that awareness, if you like, to try to make the world a better place. Well, David, uh, keep up the good work. A very enjoyable read and a very uh, a fascinating insight into different cultures, different worlds and how they came together. A Hair Marked Moon from Bhutan to Yorkshire, the story of an English stupa. The book is published in hardback by Unbound. The author is David Lascelles. And David, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope people have enjoyed listening to me and I hope some of them buy the book as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and legacy of Frederick the Great, and we'll be finding out whether he deserves his celebrated reputation. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History History. on News Talk.